0: Today on BASIC, from Nickelodeon's Double Dare, Mark Summers.
1: Jerry Laybourne, who was a genius, realized that kids were uh, living vicarious through their moms and dads watching Price is Right, but didn't have their own game show. And they took Truth or Dare, which was something kids played on a playground, and added slime and physical challenges in an obstacle course, and it became what it became. So the first day, I walk into the studio, and here are these gigantic props. And these people are putting ice cream and chocolate and just all sorts of slime. And I said, excuse me, what are you doing? And they said, well, whoever wins the game has to run through the obstacle course and there will be food and all sorts of gooey stuff that they have to go through. And I said, well, why would anybody want to do that? And they said, well, kids want to get messy. Well, of course, it exploded and the kids went out of their minds. But apparently the street term for heroin was GAC. And our crew was the one who came up with the term GAC. And, you know, the next thing they know, Nickelodeon and their wisdom was merchandising this stuff, not knowing that the word "gag" was actually a term for heroin. Hey, everyone, and welcome to BASIC. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive,
2: and I'll take the physical challenge.
0: And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. And always, I will answer the trivia question.
2: So BASIC is the official podcast of the unofficial history of BASIC cable television. Who have we got today, Jen?
0: So we've got Mark Summers, the original host of Nickelodeon's Double Dare, which was a huge phenomenon and one of the sh- network's first big hits. And of course, it created the icky, gooey, gross green slime, which has been part of Nickelodeon's branding ever since. And uh, it's also still used on their annual NFL telecasts.
2: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That show was huge. Mark was an iconic figure for an entire generation of kids in the 80s and 90s, including members of our staff, and it really put Nickelodeon on the map. Jen and I will be back after the interview to wipe the slime off and break it all down. In the meantime, take a listen to our conversation with Mark Summers.
0: Well, Mark, welcome to BASIC. We're very excited to have you here. And as is a tradition on this podcast, we're going to open with a question that we ask of all our guests which is, do you remember when you first got cable and were you excited to watch it?
1: I was, and we got it because we had a baby and I figured, well, we'll be home watching lots of TV. And there was a horrible show that Nickelodeon was doing called Pinwheel with the worst puppets I've ever seen in my entire life. And they ran it 24 seven, And my uh, son, who is now 42, was mesmerized by these ridiculous puppets. And that was the first show I remember on cable. And that was 1980, I believe it was.
0: So what was your end goal at that time? What were you aspiring to do?
1: So I was in my dorm room at Graham Junior College and I turned on a tonight show and saw a young comedian by the name of Alan Bursky, He was the youngest comedian ever in the history of The Tonight Show. And I thought, well, hell, if he can do it, so can I. And, you know, I moved to Los Angeles thinking, A, I was going to be a stand-up, and then eventually take Johnny Carson's place. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that was the goal. Little did I know there were people in front of me by the name of Jay Leno and Dave Letterman and Robin Williams and Gary Shandling, who actually were a hell of a lot funnier than I ever was.
2: But you were kind of focused on, like, hosting stuff, it seems, looking at your resume.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I idolized Bob Barker from the time I was in nursery school. I would come home and Truth or Consequences was on the NBC network. And I would come home from Miss Helm's class and watch Barker. And my first job in Los Angeles in 1973 was writing Truth or Consequences the last year Barker hosted it. So it's, you know, living the dream.
0: So in terms of auditioning for Double Dare, like you got tipped off about that by a friend, I think, right? How did that all come about?
1: Uh, They had auditioned a thousand people in New York, so the story goes, didn't like anybody, so they say. I got called from a friend of mine, Dave Garrison, who was a ventriloquist. And uh, I was hosting Monday nights at the Improv and trying to get him to become a regular and things like that. And he finally called me one day and said, you know what, this isn't for me anymore. I'm going to go behind the scenes and become a producer. So I got a call from some network called Nickelodeon. uh, I don't even know what it is. They're doing a game show. Why don't you go instead of me? So I got there. They said, Dave Garrison. I said, Dave couldn't make it. My name is Mark. Can I audition? They went, yeah, sure. So I was the first person to audition in Los Angeles. I got uh, about four callbacks. I auditioned in June, a couple of times in July, then again in August. Hey, Mark, what year was that? Uh, 1986. Got it. And so I always did one thing when I went into an audition. I would get the exec producer's name and phone number and the head of casting. And so we were uh, the week before Labor Day. And I had not heard from them. So I called Mike Klinghoffer, who was exec producing. And I said, hey, where are you on this thing? Because I know you're going to start shooting in a week or so. And he goes, you know, it's funny you called. We were just thinking about you. It's between you and another guy. But when we did the auditions, we had grownups playing the part of kids. We don't know if you're good with kids or not. And I said, well, I have a couple of kids. And, you yeah, know, well, that doesn't mean anything. And I said, well, I did magic shows for kids for a long time. He goes, yeah, that doesn't mean anything. So I said, well, uh, why don't you just fly me and whoever this other person is to New York, put us in a studio with kids, and let the best man win. He said, I'll call you back in an hour. And he called me back in an hour and said, what are you doing over Labor Day? I said, coming to New York? He said, yes. So they flew us both out there. This guy went first. I went next. That was on a Monday. On Wednesday, the phone rang. It was Klinghoffer. He said, congratulations, you're the host of Double Dare. I said, after 1,000 auditions in New York and 1,000 in L.A., why did I get the job? And he said, quite honestly, you were both about the same. But at the end of his audition, he looked at the camera and said, is that it or you guys want me to do something else? And I said, we'll be back with more Double Dare right after this. Because I've always remembered that hosts do the commercial. And that's what got me the job and changed my life.
0: Wow, wow, that's incredible.
1: Pretty cool. So let's take just a step back. You know, you said...
2: You didn't really know much about Nickelodeon. This was an era, 1986. This was before the Nicktoons had come on, right? This is before Rugrats and Ren and Stimpy and certainly SpongeBob and even a show called Doug back then. So what do you remember about what
1: Nickelodeon was back then in the landscape? They had a bad talk show with the guy with gray hair, Fred. I can't remember his last name, who did impressions. (laughs) They did Pinwheel. And then they did uh, You Can't Do That on Television. That was the one show that sort of stood out. I get the credit for Slime. I had nothing to do with Slime. It was on You Can't, that they would pay these kids an extra like 15 or 20 bucks if they got slimed. And I think that was the first show that sort of opened up the doors. They had done focus groups. Jerry Laybourne, who was a genius, realized that kids were uh, living vicariously through their moms and dads watching *Price is Right, but didn't have their own game shows, And so they thought, well, let's do that. And they took truth or dare, which was something kids played on a playground, and added slime and physical challenges in an obstacle course, and it became what it became.
0: Now, I want to talk about the important part of what we're saying here, which is the slime, uh-huh. which also <laughs> referred to as GAC. Yes. GAC versus slime.
1: Well, I will tell you this GAC story. The crew on our Group in Philadelphia were fantastic, but it was 1986, and these guys were dabbling in maybe some substances that they probably shouldn't have been uh, doing, and they were always right on tune with the show, always showed up on time, did their job, and then some, but apparently the street term for heroin was gak. And our crew was the ones who came up with the term GAC. And, you know, the next thing they know, Nickelodeon and their wisdom was merchandising this stuff, not knowing that the word GAC was actually a term for heroin. So little stories like that that pop through that somehow sneak by and nobody really knew what was going on.
0: Well, that's so funny because, like, they sold different varieties of GAC. Yeah. They sold, like, accessories. Like, it, it, they just went hog wild with that. I is- remember
2: buying GAC for my kids, like packaged up GAC in different forms. <laughs> Not off the street, I wasn't buying it from dealers. I was going to like retail outlets. Just so everybody knows, yeah, 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 here kid have a little
3: gack. <laughs>
1: You know, what happened was, you know, initially it would stain furniture and carpets and walls and that caused all sorts of issues. And uh, they finally kind of narrowed that down. Uh, But, you know, that stuff used to sell like crazy. Mark, I want to take a quick left turn
2: because you mentioned how messy GAC was and we're talking about slime. You have a well-documented ongoing issue with OCD. So how did you do your job every
1: day around this completely chaotic, messy world you were living in? When we did the uh, auditions, I would ask questions and we would do some physical challenges. I had no idea that the obstacle course existed. So the first day I walk into the studio and here are these gigantic props. And these people are putting ice cream and chocolate and just all sorts of slime. And I said, excuse me, what are you doing? And they said, well, whoever wins the game has to run through the obstacle course and there will be food and all sorts of gooey stuff that they have to go through. And I said, well, why would anybody want to do that? And they said, well, kids want to get messy. And so I thought in my mind, well, this is going to be the biggest disaster in the history of show business. I can't imagine. Well, of course, it exploded and the kids went out of their minds. But if you go back and look at the first 65 episodes, I wasn't wearing sneakers. We hadn't made the Reebok deal yet. I was wearing penny loafers, and anytime a kid would get anywhere near me, I was able to dodge. So the first 65 episodes, I didn't have a drop on me, not a drop on me. So the show explodes, okay, where now if you get a .2 in the ratings, you're jumping up and down. We used to get fives, not .5s. We used to get fives, okay? It became this crazy show. At the time, Facts of Life and Different Strokes were on UHF stations, and the numbers started to fall, and they couldn't figure out where they were going, where they were watching Double Dare. So we get the pickup for another 65, and I get called by the uh, bigwigs in uh, New York to a meeting. And they said, hey, congratulations, we're going to do uh, 65 more, but we got to talk to you about something. I said, what's that? They said, you got to get messy. And I said, well, why do I have to get messy? And they said, we went to focus groups, and the kids don't understand why you aren't slopped up as well. So from now on, you're going to be wearing sneakers, and they're going to be pouring goo on you. And I went, <laughs> okay, uh, how much are you paying me? I'll do it. So, yeah. so you got over it pretty quick. Yeah, I. I you know what? It was the best time. You know, Letterman always used to say the best time of his life was that hour he was on television. I had dreamt my whole life to be a a game show host. So when I was hosting Double Dare, I was in a different zone. But the minute the camera went off and I was full of, you know, goo, yeah, I wanted to run to the shower and get that stuff off me. But I defy anybody to look at any one of those episodes and say I wasn't having a good time. I was having the best time of my life.
2: You broke the first rule of showbiz, Mark, which is never work with animals or kids. Yeah. You managed to have an amazing career from it. And then you turned into like this Elvis-like figure to these (laughs) kids. You were a big star to the young people of America.
1: Yeah, we used to go out on tour. We started doing shopping malls and we would draw four, five, 6,000 people. And the people in the mall, the Macy's and the various department stores were angry because you couldn't get in front of their uh, doors to get to the building. So somebody suggested we should do arenas. So the next thing I know, we're playing the Palace of Auburn Hills with 20,000 kids three times in a weekend. Wow. You're right. I was like a rock star for kids selling out 20,000, 30,000 seat arenas. And uh, I was having the best time of my life. Basically, we would first do physical challenge competitions, adults versus the kids. And then we would go through the audience and try and find two families. And then we'd play Double Dare, as you saw it, with an obstacle course and prizes and things like that. And what they saw on TV, they got to see live and... I just did the last one. We brought Double Dare back a couple of years ago, and I decided to do another tour. When you do a tour when you're like 35 versus uh, 68, it's a huge difference. Uh, But we were playing (laughs) 3,500, 5,000 seaters, and it was primarily grownups who grew up watching the show dressed in their T-shirts. And when we do the meet and greets, I say, where are your kids? And they say, oh, the hell with the kids. We want to have a great time. So, you know, it it just has penetrated – various generations, and it's kind of cool to see. Was the show taped in Philly? Yeah, you know, they didn't want to spend any money back in the day. Well, it's not too different from now. And we had no budget. (laughs) And so they didn't want to shoot in New York. They couldn't afford to. And WHYY, which is the PBS station in Philly, wanted to open up a production studio. So they signed a deal where... Nickelodeon would shoot Double Dare there and eventually did a show called Finders Keepers as well. And then they could advertise in broadcasting and all these trade magazines that Nickelodeon has come to WHYY. And the first season of 65 episodes, our budget was $9,000 an episode.
2: Mm. (laughs) I was going to say that, you know, one of the reasons I remember being at Viacom in those days was that it was so cheap to do. You know, you could could bang out 65 episodes in a couple of weeks. You know, you'd shoot in, what, I don't know, three a day sometimes? Two, three a day? Say oh, my six gosh. Yeah, Holy cow. So just how cheap was it? I mean, were you cutting the slime and the gap with a
1: little baby paddle? I mean, what were you doing? <laughs> yeah, you know, the way they do it is they wanted one obstacle course win a week and another one to make it to seven or six. And sometimes uh, we would go two weeks without a win. And they would say, well, we have to make it easier. And then we'd have four wins in a row. So, you know, you have to balance the budget out and figure it out. But it, it averaged to be nine to twelve thousand dollars an episode in season one. And the budget didn't really start getting big until the copycat show started. The first one, what was the one that J.D. Roth did? Gosh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But it was a direct ripoff of Double Dare. So Warner Brothers was behind it. And they I was standing at a hotel, the Parker Meridian, and the producers were in front of me. And they were didn't realize I was behind them. And they said, we're going to make Double Dare with a budget, was the line the guy said. Yeah. Oh, wow. So the next thing I knew, we were spending $50,000 an episode. Well. And Darby was having... That was a ton of money back then. Oh, my God. It was insane how much money that was, you know? Yeah.
2: So, speaking of
3: rip-offs...
2: Yes. I got something I want to run by you here. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, we mentioned because of the cost efficiency of a game show, the senior management at Viacom decided that MTV needed its own game show, too. By the way, that was considered heresy at the time because people thought MTV should just be showing videos like game show. Like, what was uncooler than a game show, right? Right. So... While we were daunted by the success of Double Dare at MTV, we were certainly competitive and we did not want to be outdone by our corporate sibling, as we referred to it, the Short Pants Network. (laughs) And we created this thing called Remote Control, which became a pretty big hit on MTV in its own right.
1: And, you know, they came to me first to consult on that. I bet we did. It might have even been
2: me. MTV was then approached by a pre-Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Chaim Saban. wanted to create MTV's next game show. So we went around the block with him, eventually not picking up the show, which made him crazy and furious. So he then went out and sold a syndicated show (laughs) called Couch Potatoes, which is a complete ripoff of remote control hosted by Mark Summers. How do you
1: plead? Uh, I I plead guilty. Um, But here was the deal. I had become finally, after being in LA for 13 years and selling salmon, this hot commodity. And I get a phone call from my agent saying, "Hi, I'm Saban's doing a show that's a ripoff <laughs> of remote control and they want you to host it. I said, well, when do I have to audition? And they said, you don't have to audition. You got the job. That was the first time that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to take whatever notoriety I had and slam it on this show. And we did two seasons of it. And, you know, it was fun. It was semi-successful, I get. I guess the fun part for me was everybody I grew up on TV, from Soupy Sales to Jack Larson on uh, Superman, uh, you know, you name it, Steve Allen and, and uh, fantastic. So I would go into the talent coordinator the week before and say, can we get A, B, C, D, and E? And they would get those people just to satisfy me. So I love that stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Were you still hosting Double Dare as well at the same time? Yeah, I was Monday through Friday. I was doing Double Dare, six shows a day. Friday night, I'd take a seven o'clock back to LA. I'd get in at 10. I would tape five shows on Saturday, five shows on Sunday. I'd take the red eye back to Philadelphia. I'd land at six in the morning. They'd let me sleep for a couple hours. I'd show up at noon and we'd shoot six more and do it that way. So I was commuting back and forth, doing that every week for two years. Wow. A 2022 media conglomerate would definitely not let that happen. <laughs> I was flying Seacrest before Seacrest. You know, what
2: can I yes, tell Yes, you? you were. <laughs> Yes, you were.
0: I want to go back to to Double Dare just for a second, because obviously, as you just said, you shot many, many, many episodes. Yeah. But are there any contestants who still stand out in your mind for being extra enthusiastic or or extra weird or, you know, anything like that?
1: I used to do impressions because I was a stand-up comic who wasn't very successful, but I used to do really bad impressions of people who were not in the audience range that was watching Double Dare. For instance, I would do uh, Henry Fonda. I would do uh, Ed Sullivan.
2: Kids I would-
0: love a good Henry Fonda impression.
1: <laughs> and so the one thing I did... We was, hear, let's, let's hear a little. I mean, come on, this is a podcast. Let's give us a little, Mark. Sullivan was good. we're here our show, ladies and gentlemen. So good, And so, you know, the kids didn't know what the hell I was doing. <laughs> it it, it got to be crazy. So I would always sing there's no business like show business like Ethel Merman, like anybody at that age had had a clue. And there was this really wacky kid in the audience who asked if he could sing, there's no business like show business with, me. and there's a duet of who was going, there's no business like show. And so, you know, I indoctrinated these kids to be even weirder than perhaps they were before they came to the program. So, yeah, and I would also do jokes for the parents and the parents used to say, I watch every day for that one thing you do for us. And so I never wanted to do a kid's show. And I think part of the reason the show was successful was I never treated the kids like kids. I never said in a squeaky voice, you know, hey, Bobby, do you have a girlfriend? I just treated them like adults and I would screw with them and they would screw right back with me. And focus groups said they thought I was like a weird uncle or, you know, some uh, elder babysitter or something. And so they never were intimidated by me, but they would have fun with me. And I think that was part of the uh, success of it as well.
0: Mm -hmm. So you also hosted a show on Nickelodeon, What Would You Do?, which was another game show. (coughs) Yeah. At what point did you start doing that? Was that after Double Dare, or was that another concurrent thing?
1: We're in the middle of Double Dare. Uh, oh my god! We had—you <laughs> really were Ryan Seacrest. Yeah, honest to God, we were doing Double Dare down in Orlando at that point, around 1990, and we started. What would you do first with Woody Frazier, and then a man by the name of Bo Caprell took over. And it was just sort of a silly ad-lib, no-scripted show where I went out and, you know, what would you do if I asked you to, you know, put on a bear suit and go out and walk around at Universal City? And None of it made any sense. We shot 90 of them. <laughs> People come to me today in their 40s and go, you know, Double Dare was okay, but I really loved What Would You Do? And we had this thing called the Wall of Stuff where it was a bunch of open doors and you could open it and you either got a prize or you got hit with a pie. We had a pie coaster. We had a pie slide. So Woody and all of his shtick loved pies. He thought Milton Berle was still... Uh, you know, king of the world. And so we would pie people. And that was another thing that those kids had never seen before. Mm. Speaking of pies, I found on YouTube this pie fight.
0: (laughs) He already knows where you're going.
2: From The Tonight Show (laughs) with you and Burt Reynolds. I mean, first of all, for a guy like you who grew up with these Hollywood dreams of coming out and making it and, you know, maybe being on The Tonight Show one day. But then you're on The Tonight Show and you're pieing Burt Reynolds?
0: Well, he dumped water on him first. To be fair,
1: well, let me tell you that story. You know how this business works. If you have a good agent or good publicist, they can make things happen. Seinfeld was ending up and they wanted Jason Alexander to be a regular on The Tonight Show. And so my publicist said, You want Jason Alexander to be a regular on The Tonight Show? bookmark summers, okay? So I did the interview and they didn't think I was ever going to be on. They actually liked me. And so for a year, I was booked, but I kept getting bumped. They kept replacing me at the last minute. So I stopped telling people I was going to be on the show because I say I'm going to be on Tuesday. And then of course, Tuesday came and they, they replaced me. So after a year, they called me and said, you're doing it tonight, no matter what. The car comes and picks me up from my place up in Calabasas at the time. As we're driving to NBC, the, the car gets a flat tire in the middle of the center lane on the Ventura freeway. And I thought, I'm not meant to do this program. We finally get to uh, NBC, like 10 minutes before the show starts, Jay comes in the dressing room and goes, hey, Mark, I'm sorry, you know, we haven't booked you for a year, good, good luck. So the night before, knowing that Bert was gonna be on the show, Jay apparently trashed him. So when he introduced Bert, Burt was really angry. And he was supposed to do two segments. I was supposed to be segment three, and then Carrot Top was to be segment four.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: I mean, man, what a lineup. <laughs> <laughs> was this. Dave was winning every night, okay? And so he did two segments, Burke did, and they were really good. So they decided to extend him. So they go backstage and they say, hey, Summers, I hate to tell you this, but we're bumping you again. And my publicist said, if you bump Summers one more time, Jason Alexander will never do this show again. So uh, great to have people in high places. They went up to Carrot Top and said, sorry. And so then I came out and did my stuff. Now, you wish your whole life to be on The Tonight Show. I wanted to be on with Johnny, but I guess being on with Jay ain't bad. And we just were like oil and water, Hitler and the Jews right off the bat. He didn't like me. I didn't like him. And he kept interrupting me. And I was talking about being a neatness fanatic and having OCD. And he said, who told you you're a neatness fanatic? And I said, my wife. And by the way, I'm still married. Oh. And uh, the audience went, whoa. <laughs> and he took some water, a cup of water, and threw it in my face. Now, I thought the cup had broken my tooth. I was like feeling around and it, it felt odd. And when I went to get a cup and sort of counteract him, he straight-armed me and, and hit me again. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? So the next thing I know, Jay says, you know, welcome to late night TV, Mark, and all that kind of good stuff. And we just carry on. And I said, you know, he was the exact producer, Bert was, of Win, Lose, or Draw. I said, I used to do Win, Lose, or Draw all the time. I was a regular. And he went, funny, I don't remember you, you know? And so it was just ugly. And while he was talking, I picked up another thing of water and trashed him, okay? And the audience, which you never saw because you didn't see that shot, stood up and gave me a standing ovation okay now the one thing that i didn't tell you was jay was coming in second place dave was beating the crap out of him every night so they wanted pies to happen and jay said at the last minute i don't want to go to that level to get ratings i'm not doing pies because people always say to me well where did those pies come from it was all a setup i'm not that good of an actor it was not a setup and so you see jay at one point if you go back and look at the clip go to the stage manager, get the pies. And the next thing you know, the pies come around and Bert and I get into a pie fight and we tried to get Jay involved, but he was wussing out. Johnny would have taken the pie. Jay wasn't bright enough to know to do that. And it, that was 1994. The residuals on that have been heavenly throughout the years. They still run it globally. And I was just in New York three days ago. Every time I go to another city, people stop me and go, tell me about that thing with Bert Reynolds. Was that real or was it not real? So, you know, it never goes away.
2: Hey, Mark, you broke some more ground later on in your career on the Food Network. Yeah. You were on there pretty early on. The food thing on television has exploded since then. Tell us about what you did there and what your
1: thoughts were getting into that. Well, I was trying to pitch shows to the Food Network at the time, and they kept saying to me, well, why don't you host a show? And I went, I know nothing about food. Why would I host a show? But you sold
0: salmon, so you clearly know
1: something. That's close to food. Absolutely, Jen. (laughs) And and so um, <laughs> kind of to cut to the chase, they uh, offered me a show called It's a Surprise, where we're doing surprise parties. The surprise was nobody was watching. And it just was a horrible program. Uh, I was getting ready to do a special for them. this a national team pastry championship in some town in Colorado. And they handed me a special that they had done of Unwrapped, hosted by another guy, Mark Silverstein. And they said, take a look at this and tell us what you think. And so I watched it while I was up in Colorado shooting. And I said, um... I think what biography is to A&E, this show could become for Food Network. So we shot 13 of them, and they put us on at 10.30 on Monday nights, and it died. And the president of the channel called me and said, look, Mark, this ain't working. We're going to move you to 9 o'clock on Mondays. If it does well, we'll do more. If not, you know, have a nice life. Well, at 9 o'clock on Monday nights, Unwrapped exploded. People used to think that Emeril, who, by the way, there would be no Food Network if it wasn't for Emeril, thought he was number one. Unwrapped was number one, beating Emerald back in the day. So first we were on from nine to 930. Then we were doing an hour from nine to 10. And then I did a game show called Trivia Unwrapped. You know, I can't think of anything I want to watch less of than 90 minutes of Mark Summers on the Food Network. It was just oversaturation. So the game show didn't work. They moved it to like four in the morning to amortize it, as we love to say, uh, to pay it off. But I did, I don't know, four or 500 episodes of Unwrapped, which by the way, continues to trend every night on Discovery Plus. So, you know, people still watch that stuff.
0: If I remember correctly, Unwrapped, it it was about like how certain foods are made, popular, sometimes junk food, how that was made. And I feel like the visuals in it remind me of a lot of the videos online that are like ASMR, where you watch things being made.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And for some reason, there's this infatuation of looking at machines. You know, the thing that's so weird when Mm -hmm. uh, we would do those things is the machines that make Tootsie Rolls is the same machine that's been making Tootsie Rolls since the 1920s. And that they've got a guy there who knows how to fix whatever goes wrong. But it's not the kind of thing you can go to the computer and order a part. And the other thing that's weird is, you know, back in the day at the Hershey factory, when they were making kisses, there were a bazillion people there. Now it's two people. One person's making sure that the uh, computer's working right, and they're spitting those things out a million a day. But for some reason, people love watching that stuff. And I, I was lucky to have two hits on two different channels. And, it, you know, it's been an interesting career.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
2: great.
1: Well, speaking of which, you, you did an interesting turn a couple of years ago
2: while I was still running Comedy Central. You did an episode of Workaholics.
1: <laughs> yes, I did. I get a phone call from these guys. I have no idea who the hell they are. And they asked me to do workaholics. I'm not an actor. You've seen enough of this stuff to realize that. But I had a ball and I got more freaking reaction from that program. And once again, fantastic residuals. <laughs> and that was just a killer. It was amazing how popular. Wait, wait Comedy Central pays residuals? Yeah, yeah believe me. I, I still I think I got one yesterday, man. Wow. Yeah yeah, that was, that was great. I was in this big bear suit and they wanted to know if I got to keep the bear suit. And, and it, it, just, it was crazy. So little things like that stick in people's minds. So it's it's, it's been pretty cool. I-, I can tell you they were very, very, very excited to have you. They were all <laughs> That was fun.
0: I'm curious, Mark, I don't think there are many kids game shows anymore, at no. least not of the double dare type where you have kid contestants and it's very, you know, geared toward that audience. Do you think there is a marketplace for that or that you know, that could make a comeback?
1: They should just bring games back because there are no games, exactly as you stated, for that audience. And I just think they would go out of their minds and it would be a monopoly of uh, a viewing crowd. But nobody has picked that up yet. And I just find it shocking because cash and prizes when you're 11, 12, 13 years old, contestants would get two or $300. Well, that was like dying and going to heaven. And, you know, we were giving away computers and trips to space camp. And then we did primetime double dare on Fox. We kicked off Fox when they first started at 8 o'clock. We were giving away cars and trips to Europe. But the show was always best when it was a kid's show. And I, somebody hopefully will figure it out and do that. But I think there's a huge audience for that.
0: Well, it's, just, it's interesting because they've brought back so many game shows to prime time. You know, they have like Holy Moly. A lot of the older shows have been brought back on ABC. So it seems like this would be a natural thing to do.
1: You would think. Doug, <laughs> we got to get a job again where uh, you're in charge and you hire me to do it. But hey. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, you've had an
2: incredible and varied career doing all kinds of things, both in front and behind the camera.
1: But I started because of you on cable.
2: What, what do you mean because of me?
1: Because when you were producing Lee Leonard, and I was doing stand-up, and nobody knew who I was. Did I put you on? You put me on several times. I'm assuming somebody fell out, and they'd say, call Summers, and i drive over. But nonetheless, I did that show with Lee four or five times. You know what? That's how we met. I do remember this. But actually, I think
2: the credit goes to the guy I was working for, who was my ex-Emerson classmate, who was probably of 24 years old at the time, <laughs> uh, Eddie Madison. Yeah. Yeah, I think Eddie was a big early fan of yours. <laughs> That's funny. But uh, before we let you go, Mark, we have one final question we throw to our guests, which is, outside of the stuff you've done, yes,
1: what is your all-time favorite basic cable show? It's a show that nobody's ever heard over, nobody remembers, and it was amazing. It was on Nickelodeon primetime called Roundhouse, and it was <laughs> their version, basically, of Saturday Night Live. And I guess the problem was it was way too hip for the room. But I would spend every waking hour when they would rehearse and when they'd shoot the show. And it was so smart and so good and well-written. It lasted, I think, a season and a quarter before they pulled the plug. It was a kids' sketch show? No, it wasn't kids. It was- Oh, it wasn't kids? No, it was like people in their early 20s ah. doing sketches. And it, was, it just was the next step up from kids. It was like teenagers or early 20s right. folks doing that stuff. It was beautifully written. And I was very sad when they pulled the plug on that. It just didn't connect with the kids. And maybe because the people were too old that they could relate to. Believe it or not, that's the one that sticks out in my mind. Hmm. Is it on YouTube? Have you ever tried to find it there? You know, I did find it not long ago. I think it is on YouTube. Roundhouse, check it out. It's quite good.
0: Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today on Basic. It was great to have you. Great to reminisce.
1: Thank you so much. Great to see you.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Great to talk about slime.
1: Let me know if you get to LA. I'll buy you lunch one day. That sounds good. Hey, thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. you did a great job. Thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, continued success, and uh, thanks for asking me.
0: Thank you, Mark.
1: So Mark Summers from Double Dare, you know,
2: it's really fun to go back and try and remember how huge Double Dare was, what a big deal it was, and how famous, certainly for the preteen crowd, that Mark Summers was.
0: Yeah, I mean, that show, I think, if you were growing up and you were watching Double Dare, it really imprinted on you at that very impressionable age. And as he was saying, made such an impression that as adults, people still want to go back and, and see it live or watch old episodes of it. And I think part of that is just what Nickelodeon was so smart about doing, which is putting kids in the center of the show. It wasn't like, An adult talking to kids, it was actual kids. And so it made you feel like you were included. You could even potentially be on the show if you were lucky enough to get an audition. And that was a different thing than a lot of kids programming was before that.
2: That's exactly right. And he name-checked Jerry Laybourne, who ran the network, and Mike Klinghofer, who ran that show, and a guy named Jeffrey Darby, who was an executive there. And that was really Nick's secret sauce. You are absolutely correct, Jen. Most kids programming, all kids programming is always made by adults. But prior to Nickelodeon, it was kind of just adults almost making it for adults rather than kids. And Nick was very in tune. They did a lot of focus grouping. They did a lot of talking to kids. They wanted everything to come from a kid's point of view and feel like it was for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of in the same way MTV did for young adults. And they did it great. And they thought it was okay to be messy and get gacked and get slimed and do goofy stuff. And that was the whole secret. Kids really responded to it. They really paid attention to kids and what they wanted. And Double Dare and Mark Summers are two great examples.
0: I mean... I will say there were moments when kids were sort of at the center of children's programming. I mean, certainly on Sesame Street, there were a lot of segments that had kids involved in them. There was a PBS show that I remember from when I was young called Zoom that was all kids. But I think what Nickelodeon did that was different is that, certainly in the case of Double Dare, there was no sense that you were learning something important from this.
1: (laughs) I was going to
2: say, those shows came from public television. And so the idea is that you're being educated. So there was a line in how far they would go. But I also think Nick, Over time, Zoom, you know, was a 70s thing and and never came back, but obviously Sesame Street stayed around forever. And I actually think Nick began to influence Sesame Street a little bit as it went along Mm -hmm. because Nick got so big with kids. And look, Sesame Street did a great job in its own right. And it was really a giant step forward. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, there would be none of any of this without Sesame Street, honestly. I
2: think that's exactly right. I love Mark's story in that he's this guy. He knew who he was. He knew who he wanted to be. He wanted to be a game show host and he managed to get there and have great success, which I think is a a really cool story.
0: Yeah. And to the point that we were discussing at the end of our conversation, like it is kind of bizarre that they haven't tried to do a kid's game show like this again, because as I was mentioning, like, Game shows have become a big thing in the past decade again. ABC like brought back all of these older shows and remade them. And they are especially popular in the summertime when people want to watch something. The kids are out of school, but they don't want to be overly taxed by keeping up with the plot. It's just a very easy, fun thing to turn on and watch with your family. And I know from when my son was younger, like we used to watch a lot of those game shows. We used to watch Holy Moly, the miniature golf game show. Right. It's weird that they don't have one where it's all kids as contestants.
2: Although I have seen some, you know, those, those uh, cooking shows, there was a junior version of one of them that I yeah. uh, used to watch with my daughter.
0: Was it MasterChef or Top Chef? I forget.
2: The one that was on Fox. Mm-hmm. The Gordon Ramsay show, whatever, whichever one that was, right? I had yeah,
0: MasterChef Junior. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, I think that's a little bit about basic cable and where it's at these days and a little bit about the streamers who do kids programming, but I actually don't think... Well, I shouldn't say this. My perception is, because I don't have small children anymore, my perception is the streamers aren't quite doing kids programming as well as, say, Nickelodeon and the Disney Channel did it in their heyday.
0: I think there are some cases where they are doing really good shows, but it's hit or miss. And you really have to hunt down where the really good kids shows are on the different streamers as opposed to just going to one place like Nickelodeon and there they all are.
2: Right. Also, by the way, just hearing the origin of both Green Slime and Gack was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Gak story. Gotta say, I didn't know that. And while I wasn't at Nickelodeon, I was in the building in those days. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm surprised that got by me. But that was a great anecdote from Mark, I thought.
0: Yeah. And it's just extra funny when you know that. And then you go back and you look at all the GAC merchandise that existed.
2: Tons. Now I'm going to go on eBay and see if I can find some. But uh, (laughs) I'm glad you and I got through this thing without sliming each other. I hope the audience enjoyed it as much as we did. And we hope you'll join us next time on BASIC. BASIC is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM, hosted by Jen Chaney
0: and Doug Herzog, produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli.
2: Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer.
0: Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson.
2: Edited by Zach Spisner.
0: You can find BASIC on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow the the show so so you never miss miss an episode.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.